0: bring your medical records, a set of new tires, and give your Mercedes-Benz to a homeless guy as we discuss 1989's road house. I'm Paul Battle Creek Galliardi
1: and I'm Amy Blair. Welcome to the Annotated 80s where we try to use our scholarly and critical skills to figure out what the heck was going on in all those 80s TV shows and movies that we watched uncritically as kids. It's kind of like talk therapy for Gen Xers. And we are here to announce also in this episode that we will not be canceling anything on anyone's behalf, Fox News. (laughs) We kept listening to Motley Crue, NWA, and Sinead while our parents were out of the house. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, God, that Gen X stuff. No, we're, we're not helping. No, absolutely no, not. No, Who
1: helped no. us? No one. No one no, helped well, us. We well, helped this, ourselves.
0: This is the first time anyone's asked our opinion on anything in the last 20 years. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're
1: all turning to us now. Screw that. <sighs> we had to break into our own houses to get inside at night.
0: <laughs> oh, God. We had um, to
1: stitch our own wounds, speaking of.
0: Speaking of, uh, poor Amy, like, sliced (laughs) off your finger, basically.
1: But I had good home training, so I knew exactly what to do. (laughs) I put a towel on that sucker and went to the emergency room by myself. Thank you very much.
0: Gen X, doing it our own way. Absolutely. All right. So for this episode of the Annotated (laughs) 80s, we're going to deviate somewhat from our normal format, because it turns out, one... Of your hosts was completely unaware of the brilliance and cultural importance that is Roadhouse, which yep. is often which is often called the Citizen Kane of movies.
1: <laughs> so I, yes. I actually confused it with From Dusk Till Dawn, which is apparently some semi blasphemous. So I was I was very confused.
0: It almost ended the podcast when it I did. heard it that did. it I, was a rift. It was. <laughs> it's it's wounds are healing let's just let's put it that way mm-hmm. um so anyway so i your humble roadhouse scholar in residence from the dalton school of roadhouse studies <laughs> Good lord! you think this is bad just wait like i convince you <laughs> to watch no holds barred or the mighty ducks
1: oh no 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 i think that those will require a special paul specific side project you can, you can work on that when I branch off to do my eight-part limited series on Desperately Seeking Susan.
0: <laughs> you know, I would totally listen to that. I'm not going to lie. It's going to be
1: amazing. That fantastic. is ripe for a revival, I have to tell you. Ah, Underappreciated yeah. film.
0: Yeah, all right. Anyway, so I thought we, we would have Amy give a brief summary of the film and then any reaction she might have had. Mm-hmm. The greatest film about coolers ever made. Uh, So Amy, take it away. I'll just be be over here with my back to the bar, observing how you do, and ducking the beer bottles thrown at my head.
1: (laughs) Drinking black coffee, right?
0: (laughs) Drinking black coffee,
1: yes. (laughs) All right. So this is going to be my very fast plot summary. I'm going to try to skip over a lot of salient details, and we'll get back to them. Uh, The scene opens in New York City in a ritzy, huge bar which the rent must have been ridiculous because it's way too big. But anyway, oh, yeah. uh, where a fight is being broken up by Dalton, who is played by Patrick Swayze, who after a, a brief kerfuffle takes the guy outside and gets stabbed several times in the process. And he's able to defuse the fight very quickly. As he's sewing himself up in the back room, he is met by Tillman, who looks actually really super creepy, but apparently is not the villain of the film, which is uh, a little confusing at first. It turns out that Swayze is the second most famous super bouncer or cooler in the business. And Tillman is a big fan. (laughs) He's he's, he's the the president of the cooler fan club. Uh, And he actually also has a bar that's basically a den of vipers in Missouri that he needs Dalton to come and clean up. Dalton says, sure. And he gets out his car and drives down to the Double Deuce Truly the double deuce is a disaster. It's tough to know really how they stay in business uh, because of all of the damage that is incurred every night. First thing I wrote on my notes is how did they get insured? I have no idea. And then amusingly enough later, they mentioned that the insurance is gonna, like, becomes one of the, the jokes later <laughs> in the movie. I was very, very proud of myself for ante- anticipating the insurance joke. Very
0: um, good. Very good.
1: Uh, anyway, so Dalton agrees to take the job after he sees one night of what a disaster it is. It's a challenge. He loves challenge. He ends up going to rent a lovely Riverside Verbo owned by a horseman named Emmett, who is lovingly grizzled. This Verbo happens to be right across the way from a giant plantation-style mansion owned by a guy named Wesley, who is played by Ben Gazzara. Turns out Wesley basically owns the town, and he does not cotton to Dalton coming in to clean things up. He wants the double deuce to fail for some reason. This, is, this becomes very fuzzy and unclear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually he wants Dalton to fail because Dalton has started sleeping with his ex who is the town doctor named Doc who is woodenly played by Kelly Lynch. At one point Dalton calls up his BFF and mentor, Wade Garrett, who is played by Sam Elliott. Uh, Wade is the first most famous cooler in the business. And Wade decides that he's gonna come down and see what his buddy Dalton has gotten himself into. There are lots of kickboxing matches. Uh, Dalton rips a guy's throat out with his bare hands at one point. Um, There are a lot of monster trucks destroying things. Uh, Businesses and houses are blown up. Wesley completely decompensates and starts down the path of the serial killer. Uh, He has a goon squad and one of them murders Wade. Um, And then in a dramatic solo last stand, Dalton single-handedly, actually though with the help of his car, his trusty sidekick, which we'll talk about, Mm -hmm. um, takes out the entire gang, except the last moment he's poised with his fist over, he's going to like claw out Wesley's throat, and he has a pause. He realizes, "Mm, maybe I can't do that. And just as he pauses, it turns out that all of the elders of the town are actually there with giant guns, and in a semicircular firing squad, uh, they all shoot Wesley. Um, as soon as they're done with, it's very dramatic and, and and you know lot lots of blood. It's very exciting. Police show up. Everybody lies to the police, it says none of them ever saw anything, and then everybody's happily ever after. The last scene is Doc and Dalton skinny dipping in the river peace and nature returning to normal. Um, And scene.
0: You know, you reading that summary makes the movie seem stupid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What? I thought it made the movie sound fantastic.
0: Oh, it is. It's totally fantastic. (laughs) But just like, just the kind of neutral language for the most part of (laughs) what happens in this movie, I've seen probably 13 times in my life. That's kind of dumb. Like, hearing, you, like hearing it, you,
1: hearing it from a, a neutral party yeah. gives you pause, doesn't it? Yeah, it
0: does. It does. Huh?
1: And, and maybe that's really the essence of uh, the, the the thing that we're looking at today. Because um, you know we've done the love boat, right? Mm-hmm. Which it kind of straddles that line of good and so bad it's good and i mean clearly the thing that we enjoyed very much from the love boat was linda evans being Mm -hmm. super campy and over the top but one of the things that paul and i noticed about love boat is actually the first season was good like it had some good moments like legitimately good moments and it just sort of ended up kind of going jumping that proverbial shark Right. It's a phrase that we actually haven't used yet in all of our episodes. So there we go. Uh, So one of the questions I had Mm -hmm. when viewing this for the first time, uh, this is a uh, a 1989 Mm -hmm. feature film. And that's the end of the 80s, right? It's not the beginning of the 80s where we have a whole bunch of the sort of sexploitation and porkies and things like this. And also by the end of the 80s we're having some of the bigger action movies right Mm -hmm. Um, but this seems like a sort of small action movie it's not really a franchise so i wondered to myself how did this land at the time and as a person who is a scholar of reception Mm -hmm. i looked up the contemporaneous reviews of the film i'm going to read a few of these for you paul if you don't mind
0: please they're
1: pretty (laughs) terrible i actually thought i might (laughs) I thought that I actually might find, like, mixed reviews, mm-hmm. um, but no, no, I did not, no. All the ones from 89 are pretty terrible. People Magazine says...
0: That's basically, yeah, about like that critical darling that is People Magazine. Right, hey, sure. now...
1: I won't go into the whole history of magazines, but in, in okay. 1989, People Magazine has a pretty big footprint in terms of who's going to be
0: that's okay. going
1: to view that's, that's mass I, media. I, all
0: right, fair. We'll, we'll 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 uh
1: we'll class it up for you a little bit as we go along here with the reviews, okay? So, People though says, vulgarity isn't the movie's main vice, hypocrisy is. He's already class. Mm. Roadhouse doesn't even court its constituency with the style Sylvester Stallone serves up. And the screenplay by Hilary Hinken and David Lee Henry features spectacularly terrible dialogue. In a do or die combat between Swayze and Gazara's head henchmen, the bad guy pauses to tell Swayze, I used to bleep guys like you in prison. And people comments, thanks for sharing. I will continue. Siskel and Ebert. We all watched them religiously during the 80s to get mm-hmm. all of our ideas. They were brilliant. Sure. Okay, so here's Siskel Roadhouse is startling because of the intensity of its violence and because of Swayze's mindless posturing. A young star has sold himself to become a pinup boy.
0: <laughs> so, okay, a brief, brief, brief aside mm-hmm. Gene Siskel was like such a weird moralist. In mm. so many of his reviews, because mm-hmm. a little a couple years ago I I went in this weird YouTube deep dive. I would watch their 1980s shows. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like every other week Gene Siskel is yelling about some moral depravity of <laughs> of uh, the latest film. And it's such a weird argument that uh-huh. like arguing Swayze sold himself and, and signed this like Faustian bargain to enter this this film.
1: Yeah, I mean, he clearly never saw The Outsiders. No. <laughs> Whereas Slice, he was shirtless for a majority of the film when he was in it.
0: Or well, Dirty or dirty Dancing. He's Oh,
1: yeah. No, he's shirtless for a lot of that, too. Mm. Okay. Well, anyway, so there's Siskel. Ebert. Ebert says, Roadhouse. Now, this was actually, I loved this review, actually. Mm-hmm. It was brilliant. You, you saw the genius, right, of Ebert in this whole review. Roadhouse exists right on the edge between the good-bad movie and the merely bad. I hesitate to recommend it because so much depends on the ironic vision of the viewer. This is not a good movie. And then there's a big line skip, but viewed in the right frame of mind. It is not a boring one either. <laughs> so he's, he's already tapping into the ironic enjoyment of the viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, that will end up becoming, I think, the stock and trade. Of it. And then I guess the last one that I will read you is Hal Henson in the Washington Post. And you're going to love this one, Paul. Quote, Dalton is an Armani Marshall in a wild west of neon and Miller light. Shout out to Miller Brewing Company. Full of gratuitous mayhem, head bashing, Gay bashing and woman bashing, Roadhouse has a malicious, almost putrid tone. It lays out its story with the subtlety of a wrestling match, and probably with less sharpness or savvy. Eh, that's okay. All right. All right, all it all right see, right, at right. the end, there's a little bit of he's giving props to wrestling.
0: All right, I'll, I'll let this slide. Help. Not
1: saying that it's subtle. a Variety <clears throat> called the thing ludicrous. It was almost like the one-line review, like.
0: shit sandwich (laughs) you can't put that you can't
1: (laughs) That's not real yeah anyway so so why has this film become popular and actually what i just said and what we just did might be one of the one of the clues to it right sure
0: it's this ludicrously bad but also kind of enjoyable film right
1: yeah, so actually, I mean, I I meant to add here that Netflix adds this movie to its lineup in 2019, mm-hmm. and it is hailed as the greatest bad movie of all time, right? So by 2019, it has achieved in in the course of okay math
0: thirty years. Thirty years.
1: Thank you yes. for the math. Thirty years. Uh, it is now the greatest bad movie of all time. It's
0: good. Bad. Well, it's it's you know, I, I, okay. I, I will say is kind of an aside for me like having seen this movie so many times like it was in the ether for me as as a teen like I, I heard there's this Patrick Swayze movie that's just terrible mm. and you need to see it and <clears throat> I think I, the first time I saw it was on like basic cable at some yes. point and it's it's a movie that calls you to watch it dares you to watch it in in, in some ways and so a especially lot the, when
1: you're a teenage boy
0: yeah, especially when you're a teenage boy or mm-hmm. a forty-two-year-old 42 English professor. <laughs> I
1: didn't think that was you daring me to watch it. It wasn't the movie.
0: No, it was me. It was me. It was you. Uh huh. <laughs> um, but I, you know, it, it's uh, it's funny because it's uh, like so. In, in some ways, it's it's a classic cult movie, right? There's, mm-hmm. it, it did not get a good reputation when it first premiered as, as we, we have established, yes. but it, it found an audience at, at a certain point. Right. Um, and I think, so this is the first real cult film that we've discussed on the podcast here. And I grew up watching cult films. I still watch cult films, but they're really kind of hard to define as a, a term because I think very broadly, it's, it's a film that has a fanatical following. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you think of when you think of okay, when you think of a cult film, what, mm-hmm. what pops in your head, Amy?
1: Well, I have a couple of different ones. Uh, I think kind of in the um, norm challenging vein because it's like super, super violent, right? So, I think of Repo Man
0: Ooh, is one,
1: mm-hmm. like that one a lot. Um, I think really bad, good, bad dialogue, The Room, mm-hmm. which also has a crazy edgy plot. Or an indiscernible one then there's Eraserhead right who mm-hmm. knows what was going on in that thing Harold and Maude uh, is a love story that is really unconventional and so yes. can't find a mainstream audience mm-hmm. one of my personal favorites is Donnie Darko in which by the way Patrick Swayze has an amazing turn as an incredibly scary self-help guru That's and right. Sam Elliott's wife Katherine Ross plays Donnie's therapist um, but anyway, something like that. Like I mean, my love for Donnie Darko kind of exceeds um, reason, really, in some ways. Mm-hmm. And it's the little things about it that I love. Like, I love the Swayze, I love the story. I mean, I, and then I love like quoting things. Like, I, I really question your commitment to Sparkle Motion, right? There are certain phrases that you say them and people who love the cult film, like they know that phrase, Right,
0: right, right. yeah. And those are great examples, absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Thank you. So on the one hand, a way to think of cult films is just a film that doesn't find its audience when it premieres, right? So uh, and, and it finds, like, critical defenders, right? So it's the mm-hmm. unappreciated film. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so a lot of classic Hollywood films, like the Marx Brothers films, or like, a lot of horror films like Freaks or noir films like Night of the Hunter, They're not critically, well, they're critically endorsed when they come out and they gain more critical appreciation, but they're not box office successful. Got it. Uh, And they gain that reputation. You can even say Citizen Kane on a very level. It wasn't Mm -hmm. hugely successful when it came out and it became like the greatest film of all time next to Roadhouse. Um, (laughs) So another way to think about cult films, and you mentioned Eraserhead, right, Mm -hmm. is is a film that's very avant-garde. Uh, that's mm-hmm. moving away from Hollywood style filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it breaks the fourth wall or has uh, subject matter, gay life, uh, black life, uh, mm-hmm. challenging sexuality or other, other norms that, you know, that, that weren't in classic Hollywood cinema. Uh, so like a lot of people would say Rocky horror picture show, right. Where you, you have mm-hmm. people addressing the fourth wall and you have, you know, cross-dressing and uh, mm-hmm. bisexuality and, Stuff you wouldn't see even in like mi- most mid 70s uh, right. Hollywood films. right? right. Um, but I think for most of us, we think of a film that doesn't find an audience that's not critically praised, mm-hmm. but finds an audience in cable viewing or television mm-hmm. viewing or home video viewing mm-hmm. um, like Roadhouse. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a film that, as we have established, did not find an audience, was critically trashed, mm-hmm. but it found the audience in, on cable TV. I and thought you were going
1: to say it found the audience it deserved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a response to that, but that's, that's pretty accurate. That's, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I, got, yeah, I, got, yeah, I got no comeback to that. Um, Sorry. That's, that's fine.
1: It found its so people. The, what? It found, it found its, its people. It it's found its
0: people. It's found it its, found its people. people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually pretty typical for a lot of cult films. Mm-hmm. So everything from the Ed Wood films to mm-hmm. a lot of action films of the 70s and 80s to bad musicals, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were perhaps B pictures and those were like, you know, sort of second tier films, the 1950s and, and 1940s. Mm-hmm. When television is looking for content. Mm-hmm. Those are the films Hollywood studios like. Yeah, you can go show this this garbage, and mm-hmm. it's totally fine. And so, repeat viewings they gain an audience that way. Um, and when you have the rise of cable, because cable networks need a whole lot of time to fill, you're either showing reruns of sitcoms or '70s cop shows, or these badly received films that you can show ad nauseum on HBO, on TBS, on TNT, and. People are watching them.
1: And that's an 80s thing, right? That's oh, yeah. because I still remember the TV stations all just going offline when I was really little. Mm-hmm. Right. And you'd have the, the pattern. Um, but eventually, and, and, right, yeah. over the course of our childhood, you get 24 hour television. Yeah.
0: And if you're staying up at one o'clock in the morning, you're not watching, you know, like first run programming. You're watching stuff that stations can burn at one mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning. And and Roadhouse falls into that category, Mm -hmm. right? It it gets that audience through repeated viewings. And this is still a thing today, Mm -hmm. There's a Variety article uh, during the pandemic. One of the things that saved cable, quote unquote, was that they would start to show the same movies over and over again, because they understood that you have a limited window with people's viewing habits. So if you Mm you can show them something recognizable, Mm-hmm. and get them, I think, within six minutes huh. or a six-minute window, then you can start to cycle through the commercial breaks.
1: Ah, um, yeah. And
0: so you think of how most people watch television now is through digital media, and it's very broken up. But when mm-hmm. you're scrolling through and you see Roadhouse or you see Independence Day mm-hmm. or these these films that lend themselves to repeated viewings, that has kind of helped the the uh, com- uh, com- commercial dollars of cable. Mm-hmm.
1: So. Well, and it makes sense during the pandemic too, because, you know, people are saying they don't really have a lot of times the bandwidth to um, watch something new, right? No, this is Comfort right. viewing, right? Mm-hmm. Total comfort viewing. So here's the thing I'm wondering, which is, is if these films are being shown all the time on, you know, cable,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: is there ever a moment where they cease to be cult films and become mainstream? It's they... a philosophical question.
0: It's, it's a very philosophical question. <laughs> and then when we're talking about Roadhouse, then the first philosophical question is, <laughs> what makes a cooler? What makes a famous cooler? <laughs> the third or second question is, can cult films go into the mainstream? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, I think they absolutely can. I think there's a fair question then of what's the rubric? Are they really mm-hmm. a cult film anymore? Mm-hmm. So by, by one measure, a Christmas story, is a cult film. It wasn't that popular upon release. Mm-hmm. And then, gosh, it found its audience at HBO, then the Turner Networks in the 80s and 90s. And, and now it's like this giant Christmas staple. Right?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, Everyone I, knows you'll shoot your eye out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, or drink more Ovaltine. Ovaltine right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. Or I, I would even say things like Rocky Horror. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not really a cult film. Yeah, the main point. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's now I think very much in the mainstream, even though it still has that marker of a cult film. Mm-hmm. It's it's worked its way into the pop culture so much that I, I I I I can't really say it's it's not mainstream in its own its own way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Rocky Horror is interesting. It it really highlights one of the things that I think is particularly important because, uh, again, because I do reception, right, Mm -hmm. about a cult film, which is that the cult film sort of feeds and creates a community within the audience, right? Right. you know, when we talk about the cult film is sort of imminently quotable. And that's one of the things we keep bringing up, like everybody knows this line. If you are a person who knows all the lines from the cult film, then it's like a, it's like a call and response, right? It's like a code mm-hmm. word for all the people who know that film. And so right. Rocky Horror like takes that to another level and it becomes this giant performance. You know, remember in our Cheers episode, I mentioned that basically Harvard, uh, Rocky Horror's, that's a verb? Rocky Horror's love story, right? (laughs) For all of its freshmen and sort of Mm -hmm. part of the freshman indoctrination on the campus. Like, you know, learning how to say the right things to love story turns you into a true Harvard student. Sure. Right. Um, and then one of the things like Paul and I sat down and basically just riffed spinal tap to each other for a whole afternoon (laughs) because you can kind of keep going with that. Right. Um, you know, and that means that we are people who watched way too much Spinal Tap. But, you know, sure. that that is a community-building kind of exercise. So,
0: mm-hmm. And then different communities have, you know, like mm-hmm. for me, growing up playing hockey, like the movie, like the cultural touchstone for us was was Slapshot. And so mm-hmm. I can still recite, you know, lines from Slapshot. And, like, you're in on the joke. You're in on the reference. And Absolutely. that makes you part of the cool kids, so to mm-hmm. speak. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely.
1: My but yeah, debate team. It was Repo Man.
0: Ooh, we interesting. All, yeah, that was our debate team
1: movie. Let's go yeah. eat sushi and not pay. Yeah, let's go to, do some crimes.
0: <laughs> I, need to, I need to watch Repo Man again. I haven't seen. that Yes, in you so do. Long. Mike
1: Nesmith was the executive producer. The monkey oh,
0: that,
1: who made yeah. his money from liquid paper.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm
1: And knowing all of those things about Repo Man also puts me in the member of as a member of the Repo Man community.
0: That's absolutely true. And knowing yeah. the soundtrack. Yeah.
1: Anyway. One of the things that's also interesting to me about this cult movie thing um, is we've listed a whole bunch of different types of movies, Mm -hmm. right? Like not a lot of the same people will necessarily watch all of these movies. So they they all have sort of different genres. Um, And I have to confess, I was a little bit confused about the genre of Roadhouse. So what is Roadhouse? What kind of movie is it?
0: On the one hand, I, I, it, it clearly is an action movie. It, it, like, the critical reception places it in the action genre. Mm-hmm. I think the action genre is kind of way more nebulous than people people give it credit mm-hmm. for being. So I, I think it actually is more helpful to think of Roadhouse as a Western.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: So when you think about the Westerns that you probably have seen, there are certain tropes that the American Western tends to have, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a community that's in distress mm-hmm. uh, and there needs to be a, a, a reconfiguration of the community or order needs to be restored in that community. So okay. that, that works for Roadhouse, right? You have this town uh, that's run by a guy for reasons and he has a vendetta against the town <laughs> for reasons. Um, <laughs> and, he needs to
1: get that J.C. Penney in there. So he has to bomb oh, right. Red's yes.
0: place. Yes, that's right yeah jc penny is part of the deep state kind of it is yeah Yeah. um okay so in that way definitely right uh Uh, you have a general sense of lawlessness in this Mm -hmm. town right -hmm. Uh, for sure you know the cops don't really appear i don't think until the end of the movie (laughs) when stuff's been blowing up and there are monster trucks going through car dealerships and this would be Mm -hmm. a sign that maybe there should be a police presence here yeah somewhere Somewhere, um, there's a mythological stranger, or mythological in air quotes, a, a stranger appears that's going mm-hmm. to write and put an end to the tumult in this in this community. Mm-hmm. Dalton, Dalton appears and he's going to set you know the world uh, straight, so to speak,
1: on a white horse.
0: On a white horse or a Buick, uh, uh. as the case as the case may be. <laughs> Um, One of the characters has to have typically an appeal to a higher code of morality or ethics. Mm -hmm. So you think of the Henry Ford or or Jimmy Stewart Westerns, or even uh, John Wayne Westerns, right? Even if they're pretty problematic on a lot of levels, but they take the high road, right. In Mm -hmm. dealing with the bandits or dealing with um, uh, the gunslinger that's threatening Mm -hmm. the town. Um, Violence is acceptable, right. In certain circumstances, right. So, even though the mythological hero might uh, avoid using violence or has some backstory that prevents him from using violence. Uh, it's a final resort. Right. And there's the shootout and the, the, the showdown high noon. Mm-hmm. In this case, there's a polar bear. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's, you know, uh, you know, potatoes, potatoes, right. Mm-hmm. Um, Typically in a lot of Westerns, you have a mentor character or someone that, like, there's a, a personal mm-hmm. vendetta the hero has to overcome, like, the death mm-hmm. of a mentor or brother or fellow cowboy. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, Sam Elliott dies in Roadhouse. And a lot of the names, right, are, are nicknames from, um, uh, like, John Wesley Harding and um, uh, a lot of the... Westerns? West- Westerns. Thank you. Um, <laughs> That wasn't what you were looking for. Outlaws. They're, oh, they're, the outlaws. The outlaws okay. from from the Western tradition, right? Okay. Um, you know, so it, it, it's pretty clearly almost allegorical in some ways, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. the, these all these characters in the West. It's set in Southern Missouri, which mm-hmm. is this weird conflux of the South and the Midwest and the West, and this is where the, you know, the James Gang was hanging out and the Ozarks, and so it's this lawless, like lawless place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's totally Western. It's a Western.
1: Yeah, I completely buy that. Absolutely. So I think we need to talk about Dalton a little bit too. Um, I had some questions. Uh, okay. He has a somewhat uh, unusual career path to becoming the second most famous cooler in the business. <laughs> He's actually an, an NYU student with a philosophy degree. Yes. Um, of some sort. I, I couldn't tell. Uh, many of the materials surrounding the book say it's PhD, but I couldn't get any textual evidence for that. It's just yeah. some sort of philosophy degree.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he practices Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. Uh, while shirtless and well-oiled. Yes. He also is the only character in the movie who reads. Um, I th- I, it, the fact that a book showed up in this movie very prominently just it sort of, it, it was so incongruous, it struck me. So I had to go and figure out what this book was. Um, <laughs> because like, if, if there's this a book-
0: not, This is not a movie that lends itself to you reading anything at No, all, no, know. it
1: wasn't based on a book. But, you know, yeah. when I see books and things, I go, ooh, what mm-hmm. is that book? What mm-hmm. does it mean? Um, so I found it. It's Jim Harrison's Selected and New Poems, uh, which is roughly contemporaneous with the uh, filming of Roadhouse, A line from the New York Times review of this collection reads, Mr. Harrison has few equals as a writer on outdoor life, the traditional heritage and proving ground of the American male. So it's manly man poetry. Um, Mm -hmm. And I actually checked it out. And um, yeah, I think that that's, it's Hemingway-esque. Maybe that's, there's something to that. Um, It's definitely philosophical. So I started thinking, like, okay, so Dalton, a uh, sensitive New Age guy or burly nature guy or combination of both? What uh, do you say?
0: I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I would say more in, in, in the middle. Like, he, he's both, like, you said Hemingway-esque, right, the kind of, the, the, or the poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think about the connection to the West, right, or the Western, like, the, the very you know, staid and, um, manly, you know, man that comes to fix fix the community.
1: Unflappable. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. He he that's doesn't not flapped. Well, there's. I made the joke earlier, but there, there's a scene very early on where he's standing by the bar and a beer bottle is thrown at his head. He just kind of casually ducks away. Um, <laughs> right. It's almost like a parody of a western in mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. some ways. There's a lot of it him that's coded as new age and very modern for the nineteen nineteen eighties. Another um, other ways, like he's he's sort of a callback to mm-hmm. both both a manly man and a man that's very much in touch with his environment and uh, his emotions and he has a, a different pathway to understanding the world around him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's kind of anti modern uh, in some mm-hmm. ways or, or mm-hmm. like a Fenimore Cooper character mm-hmm. uh, stuck in you know the the double deuce in 1989. Um, got it kind yeah. of like a
1: he's a he's a cowboy sheriff philosopher yeah naturalist
0: yeah he's he's a man of many traits and many capacities man of many ways a man of, yeah yeah <laughs> well, uh, he is he is a man for all of us and yet none of us at the same time oh God. <laughs> zen there you go uh
1: well he does do tai chi um mm-hmm. and i mentioned that he does when we when he does tai chi uh, the camera stops and watches. So I feel like this is a good time to talk a little bit about the gaze in this mm. film because that's, that's kind of one of the elephants in the room here.
0: It's, it's adult in the room is what it is. I mean, it, it's, gosh. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I remember thinking, wow, they are not shying away from showing Swayze's body as an object. Mm-hmm. And so the, the scene that you're referring to where he's doing the Tai Chi on the riverbank
1: mm-hmm. and
0: the uh, the villain in the film is watching him, his mm-hmm. grizzled old um, farmer that he's living with is looking at him, the camera is looking at him. So mm-hmm. in some ways, the, the film is, is like, there's no, no women are looking at him at that moment. It's all male gaze upon male gaze. And so the camera is also the male gaze. And so in some ways it, the film is teaching you it's okay to look at his body mm-hmm. um, from a both homoerotic and heterosexual way, because a heterosexual audience, you presume, mm-hmm. is looking at a male figure that is coded as heterosexual, but it's a homoerotic gaze, mm-hmm. but the film is saying it's okay to look at his body because he's, this is a, in a heterosexual framing, it's, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense whatsoever.
1: Well, it's done a lot of setup that we're also supposed to spend a lot of time looking at women's bodies, right? Right. Because right. there's a whole lot of full frontal waist-up nudity. Um, yes. In this film, um, to the point where you just—it's so very, very gratuitous, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the arguments would be that that exists to shore up the heterosexuality of the male characters, so that we don't think that when they're grappling with each other in a fight that they actually desire each other, right? right? Which, okay, I'm there, that's the Laura Mulvey, right? Uh, film <laughs> studies, it's very, very, I mean, it's, it's foundational, and, and there's yeah. a point, there's a very big point. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, however, as a woman who was a child in the 80s um, who now, spending all of this time, right, as we've been doing, um, thinking about the eighties and rewatching a lot of this material wonders how in the world, and I don't know that I did, how, how did I survive that with any sort of sense of self intact? Because the the rampant misogyny of eighties media is just astonishing. And um, mm-hmm. in thinking about this film, I was actually thinking a little bit, not just of action films, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really made me think of porkies, which I never watched. But the whole point of Porky's is that there is a bar on the edge of town where the guy has uh, drilled holes in the women, in the men's and women's bathrooms so that right. the guys can go and, and watch um, girls naked showering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wesley Morris, who's a film critic, uh, culture critic for The New York Times, uh, actually wrote this incredible article at the time of the uh, Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings mm-hmm. um, in reference to Christine Blasey Ford. Um, and, of course, the her interaction with him happened in 83, 84, right? Um, and as he was talking about his high school, he references a lot of these 80s films, right? Um, he references Caddyshack, right? That they are trying to sort of uh, replay that aesthetic, mm-hmm. right? And imitate it. Um, and one of the things that Wesley Morris argues is that, you know, actually this stuff did a lot of actual legitimate real life harm to women. And that in, in, in many cases too, it's not just that we have a desiring gaze for the women in roadhouse, but that a lot of times women's bodies are being used kind of as punchlines. right? Right. This is really famous moment where, um, Wesley has brought his paramour, who we know is also abused by him, right? Mm-hmm. We see her in an earlier scene, she's got a black eye and she's trying to do jazzercise and he screams at her. Um, but he brings her to the bar and he says, do you wanna go dance? And she goes up and starts doing a striptease. Right. Of course, this is Beyond the Pale. And this is Wesley, he's trying to um, get a rise out of Dalton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dalton refuses to be interested at all in this striptease. Um, as she takes off more and more of her clothes, he goes up to her, she tries to kiss him, he resists, and then he comes back with this, the punchline, if you're going to bring a pet, you have to keep it on a leash. Right. And tells that to Wesley. But she is really being used as a punchline here, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this laughter at her expense. And so circling back around to Wesley Norris' argument, he talks about what Christine Blasey Ford said, um, probably the, the most stunning line of her testimony, where she says, indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter right? The uproarious laughter between the two and they're having fun at my expense. And one of the things that Morris says is that that laughter in 80s comedy about women's bodies, it also was raced, right? Because all mm-hmm. of the women's bodies are white. Right. But, you know, that that has done actual legitimate, did actual legitimate harm. He points out by the end of the decade, there, there are starting to be a lot more films about the sexual awakening of young white women, right? And the top of his list is Dirty Dancing, which, of course, is the thing that Swayze did before Roadhouse that, like, made him a huge star and made the people in Roadhouse decide that they wanted to pick him, right? Right. But there's actually, there's one very explicit, deliberate echo of Dirty Dancing in this film, which I couldn't believe it. I was... I. Immediately texted Paul. It's like, oh my God, they're directly quoting the scene. So, the scene where baby. I was, I was
0: waiting for this. I was, I was. Yeah, prepared.
1: you knew that the, this am, was yeah. coming. Uh huh. Okay, so the scene where Doc goes to the Verbo with Dalton mm-hmm. and they have sex for the first time. Dalton leans down to his radio and turns it on, and there's this like guitar rock. And he looks at her and he gives her a little look, like, nah, you yeah. know. And then he switches the channel, and it's Otis Redding's These Arms of Mine. And there's this little look and this little acknowledgement. And then he gets up and they start having sex. That's the song that's playing when Baby shows up in Dirty Dancing to Johnny Castle's place, and that's when they have this talk, and that's when she seduces him. Mm-hmm. Right? This incredible moment. And the 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 fact that I mean, even that the interior of Dalton's place looks very much like the interior of Johnny Castle's place. Right? Oh, absolutely. Except that the power dynamic is totally different, right? Dalton has all the power and he's, he's doing all of the seducing
0: mm-hmm. in
1: Roadhouse, whereas in Dirty Dancing, it's totally baby doing it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's, Roadhouse is very aware of that and it's expecting, particularly its female audience, mm-hmm. they're going to say, I remember that.
0: Well, it's, it's, it, it's a moment that is, like I think, actively also trying to I'm going to parrot a couple of things that you said, but it's mm-hmm. for the audience, right? It's that trigger to that flashback to that mm-hmm. intertextual moment of, mm-hmm. yes, we're thinking about dirty dancing and we have all the positive vibes from dirty dancing mm-hmm. into this crappy movie that's not really going anywhere. <laughs> and right, that goes back to what we've talked about a few times in, the epi- in these episodes, that star persona, right? That mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you as an audience are bringing that, not baggage, but that knowledge Mm-hmm. Of what the the actor has done, whether it's yeah. Travolta in *Saturday Night Fever* or um, *Greece*, *Greece*. Thank you. Yeah, you know, all the other actors and, and the outsiders we were looking at mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. from everything they've done since. It's just a blatant, blatant, self aware moment of, yeah. hey, we know you liked that movie. Here's <laughs> we're pulling. it's either homaging or, or stealing, and uh-huh. it depends uh-huh. on your point of view, I suppose, but.
1: So I think we've gotten to the point in our uh, episode here, Paul, where we can talk about our awards, mm-hmm. right? We have a couple of awards that we are giving out, actually one of which has been on a little bit of hiatus, so we're gonna revive it here. But the first one that has become a regular is the Ellen Rickman Memorial Trophy for the <laughs> artist who we feel we want to see all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're not on our screens, we are sad. And this time there's absolutely no question about who is going to get this um from the very beginning it goes to sam elliott the superb sam elliott uh who plays wade Mm -hmm. uh, who sadly does not survive the film (laughs) we first see him in a bar that's pretty much as rowdy as the pre-dalton double d but uh we're not clear that's kind of confusing to me remember that there are half-naked women fighting on pool tables um right not clear to me how he's the second or he's the first best cooler in the business because he's in a bar that's chaotic but that's okay um because he shows us why he's awesome when he Mm -hmm. arrives at the double d and calls it the double douche (laughs) the first thing he says um I particularly loved the way he ties back his hair, his long flowing locks before he gets going in a fight. And then the most charming scene of all, in the whole film, actually, the, the scene that you know, actually started to win me over a little bit until the last line of it, um, was when Dalton, Doc, and Wade go to an all-night diner for breakfast, right? And Wade dances with Doc, and he sings along to George Strait's All My Exes Live in Texas. And he even gives it a little yeehaw, It's adorable. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can find clips of this on the internet. Uh, we are not the only ones who loved it. So, because it is really quite great. And
0: he's so good. I I think, I think Sam Elliott really, I think sadly doesn't get the reputation he deserves as an actor. Mm -hmm. And, um, I I can, like some of the best roles, the supporting roles I can think of, uh, for an actor have been Sam Elliott Mm -hmm. I never thought about that question, right? If he's the best cooler in the world, why is he at such a crappy bar to start? Like, is he adjuncting? I mean, maybe he
1: was like mid-job. Maybe mm-hmm. he was just, I mean, maybe this was sort of his new gig and he, it was his first day. And, you know, I don't know. It's really, it's <laughs> he had to finish that one up and then he right. came down. It's right. That was kind of a question for me, but oh.
0: One of my favorite Sam Elliott stories is he's also in another cult film, or he's in many cult films, but mm-hmm. uh, the Big Lebowski, which is now I think transitioned to mainstream. And my favorite Sam Elliott, right. my favorite fan Sam Elliott story is he goes to one of the Cohen brothers midway through the filming, and I can't do a Sam Elliott impression; I can't get my my voice that low. Mm-hmm. And he says, "Boys, I love you. What the hell am I doing in this movie?" <laughs> <laughs> I, and maybe he was more uh, a little more explicit than that
1: mm-hmm.
0: in, in the response but <laughs> um but it's, yeah when i'm on a bad day think about that yeah about that exchange. that's a good one yeah.
1: well and then there's another award that's been a little bit on hiatus but we could not resist uh awarding it in this one because no, this, was, no. this was really and here here we we arrive at the moment that paul's been waiting for in this entire episode
0: i know i been... I,
1: I take it away paul <laughs> You do, you
0: do. You <laughs> people are gonna be listening. Like, what happened to Amy? Like she stopped talking. And
1: <laughs> yeah, nope.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, I'll see. F-
1: I'll see y'all in fifteen.
0: Fifteen? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll see you in an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> so this is the the. So if you remember our love boat episode, mm-hmm. we fawned over Linda Evans. Linda Evans just working it uh, mm-hmm. and going high camp, and so. Officially, we have the Linda Evans Award for Excellence in Camp uh, Award, which mm-hmm. is redundant.
1: Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> but, but maybe that's appropriate, since it's an award for
0: camp. It's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the, I'm going to award this award to uh, the legend, the icon, Terry Funk, who plays one of the bouncers, who is fired by Dalton. His first day, or his second day, technically, at the Double Deuce. Um, I'm a big wrestling fan, and Terry Funk was you know, from a wrestling family, came out of Texas, and Amarillo, um, was uh, heavyweight champion in the 1970s, uh, feuded with everybody, Jack Briscoe, Dusty Rhodes, Harley Race. Um, And then he would appear in what's now the WWE and the WCW and ECW from my hometown of Philadelphia. Um, And like, he's a classic like seventies kind of brawling wrestler. Um, And then at a certain point in his career, like not long after roadhouse, he became really popular. He helped popularize what's called the death match format, which Man, I don't know how to describe it, but like when people say wrestling's not real, and it's not—it's mm-hmm. performance art. But mm-hmm. uh, this really blurs the lines between performance and like literally killing themselves. Uh, and they're very popular in Japan and parts of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. One of the most popular ones that Terry Funk would do is what's called a um, barbed wire matches, where instead of ropes, they have barbed wire around the ring. Really? Uh, yes, really. Uh, like real barbed
1: wire
0: like real barbed wire right so the wrestlers will be throw themselves into it and catch themselves oh yeah yeah uh he would uh feud a lot with nick foley and they would have uh, like barbed wire uh bats that they would hit, hit each other in the head with oh my god uh, yeah yeah um and so there's a lot of very violent um matches that that terry funk would do post roadhouse because roadhouse was kind of like kind of beginning of a turning point his his wrestling career but god like but like the moments in roadhouse where he's in like he's he's just angry all the time Mm -hmm. uh he threatens to kill dalton i think six or seven times throughout the movie Mm -hmm. uh he is like the worst bouncer in the history of bouncers like his his is to just beat the living shit out of whoever is in. the... not like just push somebody out. It's just mm-hmm. to like break a chair over their head. Um,
1: yes, yes. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked about the number of uh, of, of p- bits of furniture that get smashed and glasses and bottles and getting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's a there's a lot of overhead with these clubs, right? But that's, <laughs> that's that's part of the problem, right? right. I just it doesn't seem like. Do you, did you find this when you were watching Roadhouse that you feel like there would be no way in hell I'd want to go to that bar? under? Why any would anyone
1: want to go to that bar? I mean, there's absolutely nothing. I mean, women are getting trafficked. I mean, as soon as, as, soon as one fist is thrown, you know, it's total melee, right? Yeah. Um, the, the band has to be behind Chicken,
0: Chicken Wire. Wire. Yeah. Right.
1: Um, and and why, would you want to, why would you want to attend or to work there?
0: It's the anti-Gillies in some ways too. Like where Gillies mm-hmm. is the place you want to go. This is a place you, you seemingly have to go because there's no, there's no alternative.
1: Yeah. It's, it's everybody goes because they want to just have a giant fight.
0: It's a, it's a movie again. Like I think it's a movie that lends itself to way more questions than you're prepared to figure <laughs> out.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's. I, I think that's probably true. I mean, one of the things we didn't really talk about that is uh, also, it, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit in our clip show, although it leads mm-hmm. a little bit into my graduate reading, uh, which I think we've gotten to that point in our episode, mm-hmm. uh, which is that our villain is not just a villain because he's trying to destroy you know, all of the local businesses for whatever mm-hmm. reason, but he also, and this is actually a line from uh, Ebert, he seems to have gone hunting in a zoo Because he has, I know. I wish I could take credit for that, but that's uh, I couldn't do that. Yeah, Um, yeah. yeah, I got to give credit where credit's due. He has a whole room, giant room in his house uh, called the trophy room, and it has you know every form of animal stuffed and mounted and displayed. And this is where the polar bear is. He's got a giant polar bear standing up, and that ends up falling on, of course, the most rotund of all of his, all of his henchmen. Yeah. Uh, who then, you know, at the end gets up, and the the big punchline of the whole movie is a polar bear fell on me, and then you know everybody laughs, and it's like, oh, it's all over now, you know, we can go. And uh, so there's there's sort of, I mean, I would I would hate to say that there's really any sort of ecological argument to Roadhouse, uh, but it's you know it's there. There's a sort of awareness of mm-hmm. the way that uh, someone who is this awful also, you know, destroys. The natural world around him and of course at the end you know we've already said this about dalton that he is one with nature by the end of the movie um so my grad reading actually uh kind of taps into that a little bit uh and it also stars sam elliott and it is the eco horror film frogs and (laughs) It is so fantastic. In fact, me being able to recommend frogs to you is how Paul managed to get me to watch Roadhouse. This is is absolutely
0: true.
1: 100% true. Uh uh He said, if we watch Roadhouse, you could recommend frogs. So here I am living the dream. Uh, The swampy goodness from Roadhouse uh, is in evidence in frogs. Key feature um, is basically think of Hitchcock's The Birds but with frogs, mm-hmm. um, and not just with frogs. Uh, it also has snakes and alligators, right? Um, what we have here is a very wealthy family that lives on a plantation in the middle of a swamp, more or less. Um, the uh, family is, is presumably inbred. He has a patriarch, and they're going to have a birthday party for him. And he, he needs to get all those damn frogs off his lawn. So they <laughs> they spread way too much <laughs> pesticide to the point where it pisses off the local fauna and, uh, they, they attack right? There's a lot of, a lot of slow moving frog action, <laughs> creeping up the lawn, lots of croaking. Um, this is another cult movie. Uh, Sam Elliott's a photographer who accidentally shows up and basically tries to get them to stop spraying the DDT. Um, but uh yeah it's a post supposed silent spring kind of film mm-hmm. just just like birds. Um, do not neglect when you watch frogs to watch all the way through to the post credit scene. I promise you you will not regret it. So
0: I I love that movie so much it is so so I have worth...
1: so much love for it. I have so much love mm-hmm. for it that even when I thought about possibly recommending Cat Blue as a uh parody of a western which is fantastic mm-hmm. um i'm just gonna mention it just gonna throw it out here but no really my grad reading—it it is frogs go go watch frogs
0: you, you can't you can't top frogs you know that there's you, you had to do it
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm fulfilled now mm-hmm. yep thank you for good. that good and now it's your turn
0: my turn so i have i have one big grad reading and a couple auxiliary grad readings all right. Uh, <clears throat> one is because I was talking about Terry Funk, um, the 1999 documentary "Beyond the Mat," uh, which is a one of the first, like, sort of serious documentaries about pro wrestling, and it focuses on probably three wrestlers: Mick Foley, Jake Roberts, um, who I saw in a hotel in South Bend, Indiana, a couple years ago, and I was gonna go up and say hi to him, and I thought, no, don't do that. Don't be that kind of person. <laughs> And he looked really upset. So I also decided it was probably a good idea to <laughs> not do this. Uh, and also Terry Funk is in this documentary. And it, it really focuses on the amount of psychological and uh, psychological, emotional, and physical trauma uh, a lot of wrestlers go through. And there's this scene, a very famous scene with Terry Funk is, is um, getting an x-ray from the doctor. And basically he has no knee left. Um, mm. And uh, ter- the doctor says, like, you should probably retire. And Terry Funk, I can't. I can't retire. Um, and was Terry Funk was still wrestling, I think, God, until 2016. I, I, mm, he's That's a long time. Yeah. And that's
1: actually a conversation that Doc has with Dalton at one point in Roadhouse.
0: That's true.
1: She tells him that he's going to have to retire because he's going to have arthritis.
0: Well, he's really sore. But pain don't hurt. As it, it does were.
1: not, apparently. No.
0: No, no. <laughs> Uh, and also I would recommend if you're going like, to go down a rabbit hole watching wrestling matches, uh, Funk versus Ric Flair, Clash of Champions 89, and uh, his three-way bout with Shane Douglas and Sabu, uh, ECW's um, uh, three, three-man battle for the, the championship in 94. Both fantastic. Uh, and you can find them on YouTube, but you don't have to go to the WWE Network and give the evil McMahons more of your money. So there you go.
1: Yep. You cannot see the blank expression on my face right now.
0: <laughs> Basically, Amy is a living embodiment of that one emoji. That's just the dot and the, the two dots and the one like like line. That's Yeah. I've never seen you less caring about anything. And it's pretty fantastic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps it up then, Paul, for our long anticipated... Eagerly awaited Roadhouse episode. Mm -hmm. Sad to see it go.
0: (laughs) So another thing about Terry Funk. Um, so, (laughs) So this leads us to our next episode, our version of a clip show, the annotated 80s seventh episode spectacular. All the things we didn't mention in previous episodes, we will touch on. So stuff we forgot or stuff that has been pointed out to us or mistakes we made that Amy made, not me. Um, mm-hmm. so, so there's a topic that we didn't cover from f- one of your favorite episodes. like say doc from the love boat or yeah. Matt Dillon's character from the outsiders hit mm-hmm. us up on Twitter. Uh, the annotated annotated the on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. and let us know.
1: Oh, we may have a couple of musical numbers. To boot, you know, because no no good '80s variety show was without a couple musical
0: numbers. So and guest stars. Uh, we, we've got Bob Hope. We've got uh, Dean Martin. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. uh, we've got Charo.
0: Charo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you once again to our producer Eleanor Toyama uh for making this sound pretty good and not rolling her eyes too much at me when she listens (laughs) to the things that we have said on our episode uh and we will see you next time see ya yeah